Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Race Car on the scene. 19.7 every Sunday at 3 p.m. We talk politics, current affairs, pop culture with a twist. Yes, you're listening to Sin 90.7. We are the race card. Welcome back for this week. Um, and, uh, I'm your host for this afternoon show, Ahmed Youssef. Um, before we begin, we're going to do a little acknowledgement of country. Um, we acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land which we meet and pray our respects to their elders past and present. This land was never ceded and the process of colonization, occupation, incarceration and genocide that began over two centuries ago continue to this day. You're listening to a one hour show where we chat politics, current affairs and public culture with a little bit of a twist as well as wrapping up the most thought provoking issues in Australia for the week. Today we look at the concept of internalized racism. What is it? 7-Eleven workers are being exploited. We're going to find out why. And we feature the biggest uh, refugee crisis of our generation. Don't forget, you can get involved in all the discussions by texting in on 027-767-767 or tweet us using the hashtag, not the hashtag, tweet us using our Twitter handle, the race card. And... Um, my co-hosts for this week, um, for this weekend show, uh, and I'm just gonna fix it, put their mics on for a moment, and, uh, is? Amina. And also, Poppy. uh, oh, oh, a little bit too quickly there, the mic wasn't on, but you can say it again. Poppy. Poppy. And, uh, we've been, we've been examining a topic every week, whether it be, what is racism? What is white privilege? Cultural oppression and, and so much more. This week we're going to talk about internalized racism. Um, and I'm just going to put up a little bit of a grab we've got in store for you. Just hold on. And, uh. The house Negro and the field Negro. Now the house Negro, he lived in the house next to his master in the big house, either in the basement or up in the attic. He dressed pretty good. He ate pretty good. But the master left him. He loved his master. I say he loved his master better than the master loved himself. If the master said, we got a nice house here, you say, yeah, boss, we got a nice house here. Master's house caught on fire. The house Negro would be the one who'd run to put the blaze out. If the master got sick, he said, what's the matter, boss? We sick? We sick. You see, this is the thinking of the house Negro. Now, if another slave came up to him and said, let's run away, let's separate, let's get away from this cruel master. He said, why? What's better than what we got here? Yes, what is better than we've got here? That was um, uh, Malcolm X's iconic quote, and, uh, and and that was from the Malcolm X movie. So let's talk about internal, internalized racism. We've all been there at some point or another, haven't we, um, Amina? Yeah, I think we've all been there as people of color who survive in a system that pre- that is predicated on white supremacy and Anglocentrism, definitely. 
And uh, Poppy, I, I know this has been uh, a topic that you've been really interested in talking about this week, so I'll let you, I'll let you go and, and let it rip. Yeah, um, the research that I've done on it, I've found that there's two types of internalised racism. There's the aesthetic, so that's th- what's, what's fixated on beauty and stand, like beauty standards, and there's also the internal, um, the internal ra- like racism. That's, um, I guess, you know, things like racist jokes and perpetuating stereotypes and things that actually hurt and punch down on minorities. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, the just on that, yeah. there's a really good article on everyday feminism by Amy Sun that articulate articulates interna- uh, internalized racism pretty well. And internalized racism is a process where people of color develop beliefs behaviors that collude or support the institution of racism. It is a form of systematic oppression where people and communities of color unconsciously support white privilege and power. And so for many of us, like as Poppy said, we learned this through subtle cues to more overt assertions. I think um, we're going to play a little bit of a clip uh, that, we, that we've that we sourced, um, Poppy sourced for us, um, and, and here it is. Surgery was introduced in the 1950s after the Korean War when women wanted to look more Caucasian to impress American GIs. Critics of the surgery say Asian women who alter their eyelids are turning their back on their ethnic identity. So uh, eye surgery, and and as we said, and I think both Amina and Poppy mentioned that um, I guess taking away those aesthetics that racialize you and, and trying to uh, more or less, um, uh, I guess, aspire to, to whiteness and, and white features. Um, you're pointing your hand up, so... Yeah, there's, um, I was thinking, like, there's a distinction that needs to be made. Like, somebody who, say, has been brought up in a Western environment and, say, who, in quotation marks, acts white, is there, there's a dis- distinction between that than white appeasing and actually, like, hurting, you know, hurting minorities and hurting yourself. And I think, like, the, the thing with internalised racism is it's self-defeating and it not only hurts you, but it also hurts others. I guess the question I'm going to ask is, how do we how do we deal with internalised racism? How do we help people that um, that harbour those unfortunate unfortunate um, views and 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 that self hate that perpetuates? The psychology behind it is, I think, um, you know, in, people who harbour internalised racism are not always aware of it. So the self awareness is something that we should tackle. I can say for myself that, like, I just thought it was the normal way to think. It was, um, you know. Being being resentful and not in, you know not liking who I was was just the norm. That's just the way it was kind of like my place in society. So when I finally got out of it and learned to appreciate what I had and learned to appreciate you know where I've come from, that was so liberating. So I think somebody who is stuck in it, it's an unfortunate place, and it's not necessarily you know about you know criticizing them and making them feel awful about it but actually just letting them letting them know because when you've been you know when you've been there and done that you can empathize with it definitely um and uh, we're gonna we're gonna be going on a quick music break um before before we do remember you can get involved in all the discussions um uh, at zero double four double seven double seven um, let me just say that again. Uh, sorry, uh, we're we're gonna be taking a quick music break. Um, remember, you can get involved in the conversation by texting on zero two seven seven six seven seven six seven, or tweet us using the handle at the race card. And before we go, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Not playing a song, but a I think a um a poem by Watson Shire. Uh, and uh, let me just put it on for you right now. I think 
Homes spat me out. The blackouts, like curfews, like tongue against loose tooth. God, do you know how difficult it is to talk about the day? Your own city dragged you by the hair, past the old prison, past the school gates, past the burning torsos erected on poles like flags. When I meet others like me, I recognize the longing, the missing, the memory of ash on their faces. No one leaves home and his home is the mouth of a shark. I've been carrying the old anthem in my mouth for so long that there's no space for another song, another tongue, or another language. I know a shame that shrouds totally engulfs. I tore up and ate my own passport in an airport hotel and bloated with language I can't afford to forget. Mm-hmm. They asked me, how did you get here? Can't you see it on my body? The Libyan desert red with immigrant bodies. The Gulf of Aden bloated. The city of Rome, no jacket. I hope the journey meant more than miles because all of my children are in the water. I thought the sea was safer than the land and I want to make love with my hair smells of war and running and running and running and I want to lay down. But these countries are like uncles who touch you when you're young and asleep. Look at all these borders. Foaming at the mouth with bodies broken and desperate. I'm the colour of hot sun in my face. My mother's remains were never buried. I spent days and nights in the stomach of a truck. I did not come out the same. Sometimes it feels like someone else is wearing my body. I know a few things to be true. I don't know where I'm going. Where I've come from is disappearing. I am unwelcome and my beauty is not beauty here. My body is burning with shame of not belonging. My body is longing. I am the sin of memory and the absence of memory. I watch the news and my mouth becomes a sink full of blood, the lines, the looks on the street, the cold settling deep into my bones, the English classes at night, the distance I am from home. But alhamdulillah, all of this is better than the scent of a woman completely on fire or a truckload of men who look like my father pulling out my teeth and my nails or 14 men between my leg or a gun or a promise or a life or his name or his manhood in my mouth. Thank you. New Zealand is having a vote at the end of the year about changing their flag. Um, Would you support the idea of Australia changing their flag? Uh, Depends to what. If it was the Nazi flag, probably not. Um, I don't know. How does one choose what the flag will be? I'm all for change, but I'd like to know what it's changing to first. But as a concept, the idea of changing a flag, do you have any issues with the current flag? or? Um, no, but it does have tied to the monarchy. Like, if New Zealand doesn't wish to be tied to the monarchy, and if we don't wish to be tied to the monarchy, monarchy is a symbol of old times, dead times, we're trying to progress. But it's the New Zealand, so are they changing it to, like, include Maori tradition? Yeah, I don't feel particularly attached to the Australian flag, so, yeah, I think I'd be pro changing it. Yeah, or like at least the idea of there being an open debate about it. I think that's important. Um, and who knows what it would be like. It's not particularly inclusive, I think, of all of Australia necessarily. It's pretty Commonwealth-centred. Absolutely. How come? Well, get rid of the Union Jack. Um, and, I mean, I guess the argument I'm recording in New Zealand is that, um, and in Australia as well, is that it's a tradition, culture, and those kind of things... Yes, but it also means a lot more than that. It means that you're tied to the UK and that you're not an independent sovereignty and that you're not an independent country. So it's symbolic. I don't know, honestly, I've not really thought about it that much, but I feel if it's something people are feeling really strongly about, then it's something we should be discussing. So if there's been enough people kind of going 
I don't know, talking about this kind of thing, saying that we should be changing the flag, then I think it needs to be acknowledged that there are people out there saying that this needs to be done. And I think that's been around for a while. There's always been those kind of um, people talking about that. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Me personally, I don't really feel strongly about it one way or the other. But if it's important to other people, then it's something that needs to be discussed. If you had to vote to change it or keep it the same. I don't know. Have to think about it more. Sorry. Um, here's, a, here's a list of uh, flags that people oh, have cool. created and proposed. Um, do any of them jump out at you or ones you might be interested in if you had to choose one? If I had to choose one, I really like number one. I think it looks pretty cool. It's, um, just for those listening, number one's kind of a, I guess, a boomerang on the left-hand side with a star, the Southern Cross. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think I'd like, like, a mixture. If you had the correct, if you had the kangaroo on top of the boomerang with the star, that'd be kind of sick. Like, all, all of the above. Yeah, if we just put them all together in one big collage. Probably number three. Um, so for the listeners, number three is, is essentially the, the bottom half of the Aboriginal flag with uh, blue on top and the Southern Cross stars. What, why that one? Why did that one don't happen? Well, because it incorporates the Aboriginal flag, but sort of keeps to the traditions of what they actually are, as well as the Australian flag. Um, and instead of having it at the top left corner, like we do have the Union Jack, um, um, you know, it sort of demotes that, you know, in our flag, it demotes that Britain is there, but it's not really important. And if you put the Aborigine flag up there, then it would kind of denote the same thing. Perhaps the one with the kangaroo, I think. Yeah. People would recognise it. It's got the stars that people would recognise. I think most people would know what it was. Hmm. Out of just general aesthetics, I like the kangaroo one. <laughs> Um, but in terms of meaning and things like that, I guess I'd have to do my research and see what I feel most, like, most connected to. Um, but I think it would be a really, like, beneficial, um, step to include, um, like, Indigenous Australians is a part of our flag and representing that. This is Amir Rahman, and you're listening to The Race Card. You're listening to Sin 90.7, and we are The Race Card. That was just Watson Shire's uh, home, and I think it's very pertinent given the current situation um, going around the world. We're going to be talking about the refugee crisis in just a little bit, but right now we're going to be moving on our uh, the week that was segment, and Amina will be taking us through what's been going on um, with the Seven Eleven workers. And Amina, I'll let you take it away right now. Sure. Um, the Seven Eleven is in hot soup right now for its alleged systematic wage abuse. Many affected are international students. I had the opportunity to speak with Nina Kairina, who is the president of the Council of International Students Australia, and here's how our conversation went. But it's coming. Wait for it. Just keep waiting. Is in damage control after it has been found to be grossly underpaying its workers. Many caught in this scandal are international students from China, India, Vietnam, and Malaysia, among others who are afraid to speak about systematic wage abuse for fear their employers will report them to the Department of Immigration and Border Protection for breaching their visa conditions. For a little background knowledge, that means working more than 40 hours fortnightly. 
Penalties for breaching these conditions are visa cancellation and possible deportation. Talking to us today is Nina Kairina, President of the Council of International Students Australia. Nina, let's get down to the chase. Why are international students vulnerable to workplace exploitation? There are multiple reasons why um, you know, student, international students are vulnerable to workplace, workplace exploitation. First is the fear of government repercussions by the employers. You know, should they report the fact that they're that, you no, know, they're working forty hours fortnightly, they risk losing their job. Uh, their student visa could be terminated, or in you know, a worst case scenario, deportation. And second of all, the lack of access to fair employment opportunities. Say, why should you, as a student who's studying, say, for example, uh, media and communication, uh, work 50 hours doing a security job or at Macca's? You should be able to work um, at a field that you're currently studying. And um, it's... Um, fact is, it's easier for local students to get all these other employment opportunities compared to us international students. So that's another factor. Third is um, the gray areas within current legislative tools that do not uh, recognize uh, international students um, as individuals. So, say, in the Racial Discrimination Act, um, you see migrants or refugees you know they have a definition and you know they they have rights legal rights um, enshrined within uh, the act but for international students our rights are defined in the esos act which uh, you know define us as consumers so therefore our rights are um, constrained within the things that we as a consumer purchase which is you know within the education um, kind of industry. What can be done to address this? What is currently being done? Um, CISA has a couple of recommendations for this. So first is parties such as the Four Book um, Ombudsman should actively back the international students to report their case of exploitation without fear. Second, um, the Australian government should have a clarification of international students' rights in which the legal rights should not be constrained within the education environment. And third is education providers, students, and student bodies need to fully support the Faroe Ombudsman in their role and in urging fellow students to come forward. That was our interview with uh, Nina, a uh, the president of the Monash International uh, Students Society. We're going to be taking a quick music break. We'll be back right after that. Listening to Sin ninety point seven. We are the Race Cat, and you're still in our segment, the week that was, and it has been such a week. We spoke about Seven Eleven workers, and the VMAs happen uh, this week, and. Um, Sorry Back to this bitch that had a lot to say about me the other day in the press. Miley, what's good? Yeah, um, Miley, what is good? Uh, but let's dig a bit deeper. Um, the media and the wider society has uh, viewed, and the way they viewed uh, Nicki Minaj's action, does it hark back to that old trope of the angry black woman? Have you found uh, the commentary, Amina? Uh, well, 
Yeah, I do I do feel it goes back to the trope of the angry black woman. The commentary posits um, Nicki Minaj as unreasonable for being angry, while Molly Cyrus is given the generous benefit of being the innocent, the young, the victim. Um, oppression, as you would know, will have you thinking the oppressed needs to be polite. Um, and as far as the angry black woman trope goes, this might have relatively superficial um, underpinnings for a lot of people, but that does have a ripple effect that is pretty far-reaching. Poppy, did you want to say something? Yeah, I feel like, um, I mean, I'm not justifying, you know, the, like, I mean, anything happening to Nicki Minaj, but she's already been, you know, embroiled in controversy with, when Anaconda came out, she was criticised for being, um, anti-feminist, but also there were feminists who were, um, you know, using, like, using that song as an anthem, I guess, and, because I feel like she was, you know, that was very different, I was, I guess, that was on her, on her aesthetics and her body and like that really that that put like sort of how black women's bodies are viewed um are viewed and fetishized i think sure yeah i totally agree you know i've barely actually like watched the vma video i just think it was a bit i i think i heard more about it like and or being talked uh, being talked about and discussed before i even watched the clip itself and it took me ages to figure out what it actually meant yeah i think i actually actively boycotted because nikki uh, not nikki Minaj, sorry but because miley cyrus was hosting and i felt like that was my only like rebellion <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> against the whole thing but i'm i'm glad the thing happened i think People shouldn't have to be polite when mm-hmm. they're faced with this kind of, you know, nonsense, really. And it's not the first time, because Nicki Minaj has been sl- snubbed for, you know, best video of the year and things like that, even though Anaconda, as you mentioned, was doing really well. Did you have anything else to Um Yeah, I mean, I feel... I mean, like, yeah, Miley had her own controversy, you know, from um two, two years ago, like, she when she, like, when she ha- did that... Do that clip, and I feel like, yeah, like she was, vict- yeah, like victimized in that as well. Like she um was victimized on, I don't know, based on her body, even though it's sh- like, if you wanted to criticize her performance for, you know, her, I guess her musical abilities, but people were more concerned about her derriere and like, you know, her her behind rather oh, than different. Yeah. And and I guess also, um, the commentary that happened when that Taylor Swift we're talking about the being snubbed um, when Nicki Minaj was discussing and having a discussion about how black women in the industry are not taken seriously enough, that aren't, uh, I, I guess, acknowledged enough. Um, we saw a, a huge backlash and, and Taylor Swift taking um, it as a, a slight towards her opposed to talking about a bigger discussion and that may have, I guess, stifled the discussion uh, a bit. Um, we're going to be uh, talking to... Uh, Huda Hassan, um, who wrote a very interesting article, um, wrote a very interesting article in, on BuzzFeed uh, a few a few months ago about the um, actually no just a month right now um, about the angry black woman tri- uh, trope um, right after that VMA snubbing and Nicki Minaj discussed um, the issues with. Um, the way people are betraying her, but we're going to be taking a quick music break and we'll be back. In, in just a moment uh, with uh, our interview with Huda Hassan. Do you, um, have you heard of the term white privilege? White privilege? No, not really. What do you think it means? I wouldn't even know, no. What's I haven't got a clue. Like? Don't know. Seriously. Privilege means being able to uh, go where you want without fear of being attacked um, or like persecuted for how you look. Yeah. Hey. Alright, so, no, five seconds. Five seconds, go for it. Alright, so, what does the term white privilege mean to you? 
What is what? Uh, there is not such a thing, man. Not for me. You? No, man. We are all the same. Oh, blood is red. We are all the same. All brothers. What does the term white privilege mean to you? Uh, well, privilege for white people, I guess. Yeah, so, is this like racism kind of thing? What does it mean to you? Just off your head. Oh, I guess, Centrelink. White privilege, I guess, is the kind of um, specialty or privileges that the white people have here. I mean, we're talking about the local white Australian. They're having, you know, having access to welfare, housing, and everything that is um, being state provided, I assume. What does the term white privilege mean to you? Um, wow, that's a, <clears throat> that's a pretty hard-hitting question. Um, I suppose white privilege is kind of a monopoly of power and ideas when it comes to things like business, politics, government, media, uh, even things like the police and the military, dominated by people who all have uh, a collective set of assumptions that never get tested by the people around them. I'm Gary Foley, and you're listening to The Race Card. Back, you're listening to uh, The Race Card on CN 90.7, and we've we've got Huda Hassan on the line uh, right now. Hello, Huda. Hi. So, so Huda, you wrote an article um, about, not an article, an essay, I should say, about the angry black woman trope um, just over a month ago. Um, and given just what's happened in the VMAs with, with Nicki Minaj and, and the ongoing, I guess, media portrayal of her and, and other vocal black women, um, can you, I guess, elaborate on what that article, that, what that essay entailed? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, basically, it was just an essay about um, the Nicki Minaj versus uh, Taylor Swift situation in which uh, media or mainstream media easily uh, broadcasted and labeled Nicki Minaj as an angry black woman just for vocalizing her thoughts and her opinion on something that's very real in pop culture in terms of uh, black women lacking recognition for the work that they contribute. Um, and I compared that to the Sandra Bland experience in terms of her being is easily attributed uh, to the uh, angry black woman archetype uh, simply because a police officer wrote a false statement that she was very aggressive and how easily believable that was to the public and how damaging and dangerous that archetype can be to black women in the sense that in dramatic or uh, extreme cases that can get you killed um, or it could just effectively silence you. Uh, I guess let's talk more about what happened at the VMAs, um, specifically um um, that interaction between Miley and, and Nikki and how, uh, an interview that, um, Miley Cyrus did a few, a few days, I think all week before turned into, um, that was basically saying tone policing to an extent, um, uh, Nicki Minaj and, and then Nicki Minaj, I guess, reacting to that and, and how that has been portrayed as, um, her being upset and angry and out of control. Mm-hmm. 
I think all of it, again, it's, it's the angry black woman archetype or trope at play because it's all derailing from the original point that Nicki Minaj was tra- trying to make, which is to st- statistically proven that uh, black women aren't given the credit for the hard work that they contribute uh, to pop culture, uh, to pop culture, and Nikki or uh, Miley Cyrus through her tone policing uh, derailed the conversation. Um, Taylor Swift through making the conversation about her was taking away and derailing from the conversation. And I think Nicki Minaj's reaction was completely justifiable, but unfortunately, it's the same narrative. Um, Nicki Minaj is being portrayed as this aggressive, angry. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Violent type woman uh, when really all she did was uh, speak to her experience and speak to something that she does not enjoy or like about her career. And I feel like if anything, she's the one who's been attacked, not the attacker. Amina, you, you wanted to, uh, I think, ask a question to Huda. Yep, sure. Um, Ahmed, help me out here. I might not be very articulate with this, but Taylor Swift and Miley Cyrus are basically glorified feminist heroes of our generation. I was wondering how is your take on the fact that these people are applauded for their feminist values, but at the same time denigrating Nicki Minaj? I think they, um, I think they definitely are representative of feminism. They're just representative of feminism that I'm not for. The representative of white feminism, um, feminism that doesn't include intersectionality, um, feminism that is like very narrow in its focus. Um, yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Huda, for your time. Um, appreciate uh, you coming on the show. And remember, you can find Huda, I think, at underscore Huda Hassan and uh, do read her uh, her essay on BuzzFeed. Thank you, Huda. Thank you so much for having me. That was Huda Hassan talking to us um, about the angry black woman trope. And I do, uh, um, I guess, suggest everyone listening to to have a read of her 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 her, her, article, her essay for BuzzFeed article essay ah yeah but anyway uh, we're going to be taking a, a quick break and then we'll be moving on to our feature for this week and we're going to be talking about the refugee crisis so I don't know I don't date white guys which is really weird but like it's just like it's not necessarily a decision I made it's just something that just sort of came and like I've noticed a pattern I guess <laughs> um, do you think the pattern is, I don't know, like a good, a good thing for you? It's worked in your favour? Yeah, it's, it's worked in my favour, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, are you fascinated with people from certain cultures more than others? Like, um, 
I like the Australian people here. They're really nice. Yeah, yeah, I like the Australian people. But maybe that's because they also actually migrated mostly from Europe. So, yeah, there's a bit of connection already there. Not most people have, like, grandparents come from Europe and stuff. They have something more yeah. to talk about. Do you have particular preferences of certain culture groups over others? Um, yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> what, what, would, what are they if you feeling comfortable around? Uh, yeah, I feel a bit more comfortable around Europe, people from Europe or Aussie people, yeah. Or if they at least speak properly English or, yeah, if they look Asian but they, they are from Europe or their parents are European or Aussie, then it's a bit, a bit more comfortable. Alright, thank you. thing we have to consider whenever we want to become a relationship first. Uh, I don't believe in religion, but anyway, I mean that the background of the religion is important because, for example, a Muslim cannot become friends with a Jewish. Ah, okay, so I don't believe in religions, but anyway, but it has an effect. The other thing is that one of them is religion, the other one is the nationality. For example, in Iranian, cannot. Uh, there are a lot of cases, but you know, it's rare, but you know. Actually, so the nationality, for example, an Iranian cannot uh, marry to, for example, I don't know, maybe Chinese. So they have some conflict. So I think two things that I wish. I'm Luke from Indigenous X, and you're listening to the Race Card. Yes, Sin has a diverse range of coverage, and you're listening to 90, Sin 90.7. We are the Race Card, and we're going to go into our feature this week on refu the refugee crisis that's happening all around the world and we've we're facing i guess the biggest refugee crisis of our generation over 4 million or around 4 million uh, Syrian refugees have fled Syria in the past 4 years um and this week we saw the hu the debate even mount e even further with the um the i guess the image circulating of a young um Syrian boy um, drowning in the water and unfortunately um, has passed um, and, and, and now we're, we're going we're gonna to try to break a few things down and the, Sir the Syrian refugee crisis um, as I said is one of the worst in our uh, in our generation so the past 20 years and I guess um, I, I went I went over to uh, to a few of our uh, good Australians around the public to gauge their opinion on what they thought about Australia's inaction or, I guess, um, on the refugee um, crisis and, and what they thought Australia should be doing. Um, here's a little bit of what they had to say. All right. Have you heard about the refugee crisis at the moment? Yeah, of course. What are your thoughts about it? I'm just absolutely shocked. I mean, I know, I know this was going on, but at the... When such an emphasis is put on it, you really do realise it's one of the most important things that we need to be focusing on right now. Um, uh, refugee intake? Absolutely. I think, you know, Australia is a huge country. I know we may think we have strains on resources, but there's always a way. Um, look, I think that it, um, saving lives is more important than worrying about security or whatever ridiculous guise they put on this kind of restriction of refugees. Do you think Australia should be taking more refugees? Uh, I don't know whether they should be taking more, but they shouldn't be sending any more away. Um, what do you think about... Um, this is uh, the greatest refugee crisis um, in, in, um, in our generation, yeah. say, 
uh, I think it speaks not just about Australia, but you know, there's a reason why these refugees are leaving their own country. So, yeah, it speaks society nowadays. Um, living conditions in their home country. And, you know, the fact that they're willing to take a risk and jump on a boat halfway around the world here. So, yeah. I think Tony Abbott could do more. Uh, I guess, do you know, this is... Um... Well, it's a very difficult situation because every country has to help. And there are lots of countries who could take more, including Australia. Um, turning back the boats doesn't work. It's just, um, you know, making people uh, disappear out of Australian minds because they become an issue for someone else. And it's not as... Uh, um, aware to us here, but it doesn't actually um, help them and it doesn't um, show any compassion by Australians when we could be doing so much more. Are we asking our questions in terms of why are people going onto boats that could potentially risk their lives? Um, are we asking those kinds of questions, do you think? So I think there needs to be a little bit more education on the issue and not trying to turn it into a fear-mongering campaign. You're listening to Sin 90.7 FM and we are the race card. And that was uh, some of the thoughts of Melbourne's uh, CBD onlookers um, around uh, the State Library. And this week, the New York Times had a stinging editorial on Tony Abbott's and Australia's, I guess, policy on immigration. And here is a, a, an excerpt from that article. Prime Minister Tony Abbott has overseen ruthlessly effective effort to stop the boat packed with migrants, many of them refugees, from reaching Australia's shores. His policy have been inhumane, of dubious legality and strikingly at odds with the country's tradition of welcoming people fleeing persecution and war. And I guess a lot of people will say, why do um, refugees go on boats? And um, I'm, I'm, there, are, there are a number of reasons why refugees go, go on boats, and I guess here are some. We are not animals, we are not criminals. We have right to cross this border. Please! Imagine yourself in our place. Imagine yourself in our place. You are a human. We are a human. You have kids. We have kids. And, and, and that will, they will, those were a few, um, I guess, sound bites that were going through around the week. And I think, I mean, uh, some of them resonated from, with you. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you go. Yeah. Um, so I think what's interesting with the whole crossing borders issues is that our world is getting increasingly globalized. You know, our technology for travel is increasingly made more efficient. We can take budget airlines. We have the, all the variety in the world. We have industries like tourism. We want people to travel. But I think it's so telling that we can't even afford the most simplest, simplest thing to the most vulnerable, vulnerable people, and that is security, a shelter, and a home. Uh, yeah, and... Uh especially with the, with the world's wealth um and and I, I i'm i'm kind of like speechless in in kind of the things that have been happening this week and i, I don't know. is australia doing enough amina are we taking enough refugees are we doing a bit um well war and persecution is increasing and it's possibly at an all-time high. And likewise, according to the UNHCR's global, um, it's an annual report, it's called the Global Trends Report, um, the world at war 
59.5 million people have been forcibly displaced at the end of 2014, and that's a record high and the biggest increase in a single year. The report predicts the situation is going to worse, worsen. And when we look at countries with the biggest um, refugee intakes from the UNHCR's um, Global Trends Report again, we're looking at Turkey with 159 million. That's that's the first time Turkey has ever been in the top 10 um, host country, uh, yeah, host country list. Pakistan again, 1.51 million. Lebanon, 1.15 million, alongside Iran, Ethiopia, and Jordan, which are just under a million each.、Uh, comparing that to Australia's intake of 13,750, and considering that's actually a reduction from 20,000, that's shameful. That's a fraction of what even lesser economically developed countries could take in. That's not. That's just a small percent. Compared to these countries that are neighboring these areas in conflict, potentially having more problems with security, and Australia, which is, you know, surrounded by ocean, that's in your, that's even in their own national anthem. They're covered by sea. They're surrounded by sea, and What even then, Australia fair. That yeah, that's another <laughs> issue that we can pull out as well. But you know, like Australia is just not doing enough. It's shameful. But a poppy people will say, "Hey, those refugees are stealing our jobs, and if not stealing our jobs, are on the dole."、Um, and、uh, there was an interesting report this week showing、uh, some of the innovation of refugees.、Um, I guess why, why don't you talk about that? Yeah,、um, I don't think it's the case at all that they're you know taking all our jobs. I think、um, there's not many Australians who are working in these jobs that are available.、Um, refugees are. Don't really have much choice once when they come into a new country. Like they, you know, they may have an education behind them. They may have earned qualifications, but these are rendered useless once they once they move somewhere new. So obviously, their first option is to go into a low skilled job or a job that doesn't require,、um, I guess, any qualifications. And it actually takes often takes refugees a couple of years to actually settle in and even find a job itself.、Um, like there are plenty of refugees who are. You know, they, like they want to find work, they want to be able to live and support themselves, and you know, get out of the cycle of poverty. But it's very hard. And um, there's one particular case. Um, a, this year there was a study done in Nil where um, 170 Karen refugees from Burma had migrated since 2010. 70 jobs were, you know, created in a chicken factory, and after that, that generated 40 million into the town in the town's struggling economy. And there was, if you look at um, BRW um did a did a study I think a few years ago where there were a lot of um. Former migrants and refugees in, like you know, who were in the top 200 rich list, and they had sh- actually shaped and changed Australian business. Yeah, I guess、um, I get, like I'm a I'm a child of refugee myself, and and just thinking and, and seeing all the stories、um, that that came through, and and people who are not able to to enter a country、um, just because、uh, I guess they're in fear of them being an economic migrant、mm-hmm. and not being a real Fedinkim. Refugee. We'll get back onto that a little bit later, but yeah, like my dad came to Australia on a tourist visa,、um, then bus took a bus to Melbourne from Sydney, and was like was living in fear whether he'd be taken back to、um, to Somalia.、Um, he was a child soldier in Somalia, so years before the civil war broke th- broke、uh, in Somalia, he didn't want to go back to Somalia. He didn't want to enter that. I guess the、um, the danger that. Met him if he possibly went back there, and、uh, I guess、um, we're talking about the intake of refugees. And here's a little bit of what Tony Abbott had to say 
on Australia's intake of refugees. We made a decision uh, last year that we would uh, take about 4,400 people from uh, northern Iraq and eastern Syria, uh, areas where the death cult is active and areas from which uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, have been displaced. Um, we are a country which takes our international obligations seriously on a per capita basis. Uh, we actually take more refugee and humanitarian entrants than any other country. So, um, and, and Tony Abbott said Australia is one of the most, uh, uh, they are in the top 10 per capita of refugee intake, uh, who uh, people that take uh, the countries that take refugees, um, Tony, my friend, you are not. Um, so I'll, I'll list the top ten. You're not even top ten. Um, Lebanon, Jordan, Nauru, Chad, Djibouti, South Sudan, Turkey, Mauritania, uh, Sweden, and Malta. So some of the the smallest countries in the world with some of the uh, in, with exception to Turkey and Sweden, um, some of the lesser countries in terms of wealth and, and economic, uh, I guess, success. Um, and, and given the past week, what's happened in Germany with them, uh, with the Chancellor Merkel deciding to take, uh, up to a million refugees from Syria, um, I think there is a, there's an issue here. And, and I, I want to ask a question. Why are countries like Jordan, Djibouti and Chad taking more refugees per capita than Australia. Um, Poppy. I think that, um, oh, sorry. I just think there's something ingrained in our psyche here. And, um, you know, like I think, you know, refugees will naturally always first go to, um, they'll first flee to neighbouring countries near them. So in Australia we see a lot of refugees from Southeast Asia, from Sri Lanka, um, but then they, you know, obviously they always end up going to places like Malaysia and Indonesia beforehand. But um, I don't know, I feel, I feel like it's... Uh, what do you have to say on it, Amina? Um, yeah, just reiterating what you said, definitely, when people are fleeing, obviously, they're going to go to neighboring countries, which is, you know, which is why when you say places like Lebanon, for example, after the whole Syrian crisis, they, they've they actually taken in, like, almost more than a million people, uh, refugees. Um, the same with Turkey. This is the first time Turkey has actually gotten into the top 10 percent, ten top 10, sorry, um, of the host country of refugees. And I think that's very telling that, you know, there are other countries that are not doing as well and they're picking up their weight, whereas Australia is bringing up this whole argument that they just can't do it for whatever reason. And, yep, we, 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 um It's good that we reference countries like Turkey and, and neighboring countries, but a country like Sweden, a country like South Sudan, um, these are miles away from uh, from Syria and from the conflict. And, and I just wonder um, why... Uh, figure, or we'll, we'll put South Sudan for a moment um, away a country um, comparable to Australia, Sweden, for example, actually, no, not comparable to Australia because Australia is bigger than Sweden, um, with a smaller population in terms of per capita. Um, a country like Germany that aren't as, uh, that are probably as big as Australia in terms of of um, of, com- uh, of of I guess sheer um, country size, but per capita are much bigger. But they are deciding to um, take in. As many, you know, more than more refugees in Australia, and, and continually Australia is cutting down that number of refugees. 
why is this the case? Why are we in a um a, a go- why do we have a government that continually wants to um shorten that level of refugee intake? Um, I feel like I mean. In the West, especially in West countries, they're very, very afraid and threatened that their way of life is going to be um, changed. But because you know, because refugees are coming in and having you know these little clusters of refugees, like they, you know, like there's it'll be generations, and a lot of these refugees, especially from Syria, will never be able to go back home. And there's that fear that the way of life and you know the the so-called culture that already exists is going to is going to be lost. And so I feel like with countries like you know Jordan. Tiaboudi and Chad, like, you know, they're already, like, it's, I don't know, they, they, like, let's just place them elsewhere so we don't have to experience that. A lot of, um, I think the Hungarian uh, uh, Prime Minister said that the ethnic purity, the the, pu- the purity of Christianity will be lost if Syrian refugees come into the country, probably more to do with ethnic purity and, and whiteness, and I think this is a topic that I feel like needs addressing um, is there an issue? And I think one of uh, a very popular UK-based actor, uh, actress, um, Emma Thompson, said, "If um, these refugees were white, we would be more accepting of them." So, do you think the the notion of foreigners is met with a much bigger fear when whiteness isn't connected? Right. Um, I think it's important to remember that religion can be coded racially. Um, the irony of disallowing Syrian refugees for fear that they're going to ruin some kind of monolithic white Christian um, theology or, you know, population makeup. The irony is that, you know, if you look at Christianity, Christianity actually started in the Middle East. And uh, you could also argue that they're probably, you know, Syrians are going to be, you know, part of that makeup, part of that history. And there are lots, exactly, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of Syrian, there are a lot of Middle Eastern, West Asian um, Christians. And that that argument to me does not hold any substance. Um, For me, that sounds like a threat to whiteness. Um, It's just coded very cleverly. And I think that's the same thing with Australia. Again, co- drawing back to the white Australia policy, I, I don't think we can talk about this in Australian context without looking at the legacy. I mean, as was previously mentioned, Australia has a pretty low population, doing economically pretty well, and it's got all the area. It's a continent. You know, you could kind of argue that. It's, and, yeah, there's just no excuses except for the fact that this is a threat to whiteness. They just code it really well when they argue their case. Uh, I guess it's um, I guess it's now time to go for one in the archives, a little bit of a, a gem uh, that uh, our Prime Minister Tony Abbott had to say about refugees going back a few years ago. Um, I'll, I'll play that clip right now. But the vast majority of these people are not uh, fair income refugees; uh, they're economic migrants, pure and simple. Now I can understand why people from horrible countries uh, would want to come to Australia. I can understand that. But they've got to come in the front door, not the back door. Yes, you've got to come in the front door, not the back door. And uh, I guess this this rhetoric of um, people not being fed in can refugees, and, and that, that obviously isn't the same context of this scenario, but uh, I'm trying to draw into a, a, a wider conclusion of of people who are trying to resettle and, and try to find their way to a better, I guess, reality, um, who go on boats. And let's, let's not kid ourselves. People that go on boats are not trying to um, flee and, and become economic migrants. It, it's just 
too dangerous, isn't it? And if you look at um, last week, what happened? The 71 refugees found, you know, suffocated and dead in a tr- in a truck. Um, they're not escaping. You know, it's not all fun and games. Like to have a, you know, to have like a an outcome like that. That's what they they knew. It, like they know the risks that they are going through, and it's absolutely horrendous and tragic what had happened. And it, people aren't just you know doing it for an economic benefit. Clearly, yeah. Um, can I just talk on the comment of the front door? Um, I have an issue with that mm. because when we talk about you know formal processes, we have to keep in mind that some of these people who are fleeing countries, um, there are no embassies. How do you access that? You know, like how are you, how are you supposed to do things like that? It's pretty dangerous. Also, what happens if you're not recognized as a citizen? That's another complication. You know, papers can't do everything. And even if you do have the papers, you do have these legitimate papers from the UNHCR or whatever. Um, there's a long waiting list. You know, who wants to be waiting their whole life? You might as well be in a prison. And I mean, I look at the Rohingya refugees. They had their um, documents. Their they didn't have anything to bring so obviously they can't go through a formal process if they have not if they have non-existent documents as well so it's often you know it's a there there are loopholes that they're finding and like you know and these formal processes are so much harder to get through i guess um going back to um a quote that uh, that resonated with me and that's why i think um i played what's in shira's uh a uh, poem, home, um, and, and it's, uh, you have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. And I think that is, um, a very poignant message and for people to understand that why would you risk your child's life if staying at home meant anything less than safety? And, um, I, uh, I couldn't get an audio grab of this, but this is a, a bit, uh, a comment that Tony Abbott made um, a few days ago in reference to um, the tragic deaths in in um, in the Mediterranean. We saw yesterday on our screens a very sad and poignant image of a ch- of children tragically dead at sea in illegal immigration. And thankfully, we've stopped that in Australia because we've stopped the illegal boats. And um, I personally am lost for words with those comments. And given um, the space between what has happened and, and those comments surely seems a bit untimely, don't you think, Amina? Yeah, you know what? I don't think there is genuine compassion in that comment. For me, you know, the presence, you know, just having the idea of refugees coming to Australia is confronting for people. For them, it's an it's an uncomfortable reality. If you can just turn the other eye, you know, turn the other way and say that, oh, we've stopped the boats. It's like that inconvenience has gone away. It's not that that compassion, you know, has been extended. It's just a matter of inconvenience. Definitely. And I think, Amina, you wanted to talk a bit about, um, uh, now it's eluding my mind, but... Uh, the I'll, images? I'll the images, yes, the images. Um, and I, I, I've got a little bit of an opinion on this, and um, I know others will, will think um, differently, um, the, the the images, in one sense, is a good thing because it stokes the flames of humanity. But in in, in another instance, do we have to get to a stage where we're witnessing a child, probably not over the age of five, dead at sea, um, for humanity to start sinking in? Is it, is that the that for me seems the problem? Right. Um, I think I before I mention how I feel about it, I sh- I should mention that I'm not a refugee 
I mean, I don't have a refugee background, neither of my parents are, um, so I might be a little bit biased, but I do have something to, to comment on. And when we talk about the bodies um, at sea or any kind of pain experienced by people of color, it's usually done for shock value. And there's um, there's issues with that. One, it's infantilizing to the lack of consent and the dehumanization. For me, it's it's similar in the way that we have Tony Abbott talking about refugees, except in, in the case of people like us, I guess, people who are supposedly compassionate. It's done through a benevolent... Um, patronizing way uh, when we talk when we use these images without yeah just definitely and uh, I think that's a, a poignant message to leave that um, that's been our show for this week and uh, I, my thoughts and I think the thoughts of uh, Amina and Poppy go to the family that lost their son and, and the father lost his wife as well and no one should have to, to die in search of safety. Um, you c- hope you enjoyed uh, the podcast. Uh, um, you can follow me on Twitter at Ahmed Yusuf10 and our co hosts. Poppy. Um, you can follow me at Poppy Parole. And Amina. I still don't have Twitter, but you don't can worry Jeff on it. You can follow the race card Twitter. Yeah, I think that's the best, that's the best yeah. option. Yeah, you <laughs> follow the race card on Twitter at the race card and, uh, I guess it's time to say goodbye. Thanks for listening. Thank you. And uh, goodbye, listeners, uh, till next week. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.